want to invite you to have a seat. As you do, I want to say welcome. If you are uh, ages uh, 12 and up, welcome, and you may stay. Uh, and you also may stay, but if you'd like to leave and you're below age 12, you're welcome to go now. You're going to be going uh, to Blue Station. That's ages 3 to 5. You're going to be heading over here uh, to Mr. Brian. Uh, they're going to be learning a great lesson today about, our, about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're in ages 6 all the way up to 5th grade and you'd like to go to Hubtown Kids Gray Station, you're going to head this way. I like to regularly remind each of us what our kids are going to be learning because it's, remember, it's not our job to raise your kids. It's your job. God in his infinite wisdom gave them to you, but we want to help you. And one of the ways that we do that is by reminding each other that we're in this together and we talk about what we're talking about in the, in the kids' classrooms. And so maybe it also, it's because I want to stump some of you. It is the, uh, historically, it is the job of a pastor to, in a sense, catechize not just the children, but also his parishioners. And so in the sense of uh, 17th century Baptist uh, uh, ministry here, uh, let me catechize some of you this morning. What doth God require, okay, I'll just, I'll cut it out. What does God require in the first and second and third commandments? You might want to take a stab at that. What does God require in the first, second, and third commandments. You've got a lot of work to do. I see a few people whispering, some, some confident hands raised. Let me answer it for you. This is the question we're looking for. First, that we know God as the only true God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry. And third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence. Fear and reverence. What a, what a wonderful truth. What does God require of us? The Ten Commandments. And this morning, a few of our children will be looking at the first, second, and third. But that's not what we're looking at, so let's move on. I would love to be able to say, open your Bibles to the book of Mark. But in 72 short, series, uh, short sermons, we completed that book, and now we're moving on to uh, not greener pastures, but something different altogether. Anyway, this morning we're going to be getting, looking at our covenant as a church, our covenant as a church. When I say the word covenant, let me ask you, what comes to mind? Now, that's a rhetorical question I would like to know. I'd like to spend the time really kind of plumbing the depths of your mind. What do you think of when you hear the word covenant? Perhaps you think of the Abrahamic covenant. Maybe you think of the promise that Yahweh, God, made to Abram when he said that he would make of him a great nation. Or maybe you think of the Noahic covenant. You think of God promising to mankind that he would never again destroy the whole earth with a flood. Maybe you think of the Davidic covenant. God comes again to David and says, your son, your seed will rule on the throne forever. Well, all those are indeed covenants, but that's not the covenant we're thinking of this morning. Covenant is a sacred kinship, kinship bond between two parties, and it's ratified by swearing an oath. That's what, was, what happened with Abraham, between God and Abraham, and Noah and uh, God, and, and, and David and God. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. It is, a part, it is a sacred kinship bond between two parties, and it is, in a sense, ratified by swearing an oath, but it is different. So what is a church covenant? Well, it's my understanding, having not been around this long, but 
for the last 140 years, Hagerstown Church, which is the first Baptist church of Hagerstown, has had a covenant these 140 years. 140 years of a church covenant. What is a church covenant? Well, I've crafted this own definition, and it's probably weak, but I'm going to give it to you either way. It should be on the screen for you this morning. If you're taking notes, it would be helpful for you to write this down. What is a church covenant? It's a local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. Church covenant, a local, collective, and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. If you're interested in taking a look at that covenant, maybe it's very familiar to you, but you'd still like a refresher, or maybe you've never seen it at at all, Likely in front of you, there's a black Bible, and in the very back, there should be, in the very back of that, there should be a a half sheet that's kind of tucked away in there, and so if you're not tech savvy, or if you'd like to take a look at that, you're welcome to do that. I would ask that you leave it in there, take it out, look at it, maybe even use it. If you really want it, take it and make some notes on it. But I would also say it's available for you online, and so if you want to go to our website, hagerstownchurch.org. You can look over at what we believe, and there at the very bottom of the what we believe page is a list of special documents for us, our our governing documents, what we believe, our statement of faith. Also, our uh, constitution and bylaws is there for you to peruse. Maybe not this morning. I'd ask that you'd give attention to uh, the covenant and the topic that we're looking at this morning, scriptures. But also there at the very bottom is is our church covenant. And so it's a local, collective, and explicit covenant promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus's authority. So in layman's terms, it's a promise that we make each other regarding the commands of Jesus Christ. Now, before I go any further, I want to address, before we actually open up the word of God, I want to address some of the common objectives to church covenants or church membership. First is the explicit argument, I would call it. The explicit argument would state that church covenants are not explicitly listed out in Scripture. It goes like this. The Bible makes no mention of a covenant made and signed for that matter. And I would just quickly, and we'll spend the, really the bulk of our time kind of explaining as to why we would still have a covenant, even though it's not explicit in Scripture. But I would ask you to think, do we apply that same logic to the meeting times that we gather as as a a church. Well, the Bible does not say that we should meet on Sunday at 10.30. It does say that we should meet on on Sundays, but not at 10.30. And yet we have seen, we've we've noticed it's not written in Scripture what time the church would meet, but we know that we are required to meet together on the Lord's Day, and we think, hey, it just makes sense. Common sense doesn't come very common to me, but that part does make sense that we should choose a time And list it publicly so that we'll all know when we can gather together and therefore not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So there is a danger when we start to go against the explicit teach or not the explicit, uh, this explicit argument and and begin to add to like, hey, maybe this is a, a good way to administrate these certain things. You might be asking yourself, hey, wait a minute, are my pastors, are they governing me with some sort of legalism now that they've set the time at 10.30? Well, I doubt nobody has thought that this morning. And so I would ask you to consider that with an open mind, the church covenant. Maybe some of you would even think, or maybe you've heard it said to you, 
The danger in church membership, formal church membership, the the danger in some sort of a church covenant is the abuse argument. I would be the first to agree that abuse has taken place in the church under, under the guise of caring for its members or caring for one another. Authority and submission they have, I agree, often been used to abuse and it should be avoided without a doubt. Legalism can creep in as well and many other mutations can creep into the church. And so we don't have the ability to say just because it's been abused in the past that we should avoid it altogether. We're not given the right to pick and choose whether we will obey God based on ways that certain principles have been abused. And so anything that can be abused should be avoided. Well, that's a, that's a terrible argument. So you've got the abuse argument, you've got the explicit argument, but then you've also got the autonomous argument. And as good Baptists, who historically would say, we are a law unto ourselves. We, we will answer to no one but Christ himself through the authority of his word, which is the theme of today's sermon. We're still not autonomous in the sense that we do not care for and govern one another. And so maybe the autonomous argument you've heard before, maybe you even sense it in your own heart. I know what's best for me. I'm a law unto myself. My relationship with God is just that, between me and God. Maybe it's even extrapolated out to to say something like, I don't need the church to faithfully worship God. This really seems to be a down-to-earth approach, doesn't it? If I need it, I'll I'll do it. If I need to to do these things, I can hold myself accountable. If I find it helpful, I'll do it. If I commit and I find that useful, then I'll do that. But when it's not helpful, when it's not useful, I won't do that. What works for me works for me, and what works for you works for you. That works with laundry detergent and which one you'll use, but it doesn't work with the church. It doesn't work with our commitment to one another and our commitment to our Lord and Savior. I'll show you this morning, I intend to, hopefully through the Word of God, that an imperative is an imperative. Whether we formalize it through formal church membership or even a church covenant or not, we are still committed, we're still commanded to be committed one to the other. The logic behind the church covenant kind of goes like this. So if you're trying to follow me and you say, how do we get from it's not in the Bible to now we're going to to do this? We're going to apply this. Well, the first thing I would say is this. This is the first step in the line of reasoning. And these really are my four points this morning. The first one is this. The Bible is the word of God. We're going to start where we can all agree. We're going to start where we can all say amen. If you're a member of this church or just stopping by and you're a Christian, I know that you probably believe this, that the Bible is the word of God. If the Bible is the word of God, will you also believe Point number two, the Bible gives specific commands to all Christians. The Bible gives specific, and I would say explicit, commands to all Christians. We'll move on from that point that we've established, that we'll work to establish, to establish this. True Christians will submit to God's commands. True Christians will submit to God's commands. Got a little tight in here. Maybe you you need to go ahead and unbutton your collar or make a little bit of room there, right? I I swallow a little bit on that one. That's a tough one, right? True Christians will submit to God's commands. We'll see in Scripture. The Scriptures clearly teach this. And finally, we'll end here. True Christians can expect other Christians to submit to God's commands. So we'll take the next 10 weeks 
to really further explore our church covenant. This morning, we'll be looking at the first bullet point in our church covenant, which is interesting because it is this very thing. The reason why we have a covenant today is because we can believe, we should believe one of the other, that because God's word is his word, and because it gives us commands as Christians, and because the true Christians will submit to God's commands, that we can hold each other accountable to the word of God. And that's the main point. We will submit ourselves to the authority of Christ through his word. When we covenant one with the other as a church, this is what we're saying one to the other. We're saying that we will submit ourselves together to Jesus Christ and we'll do that by submitting to his word. I'll admit that the safest way for me to preach God's word is by opening up the Bible and expounding a passage, the one that came after the one we expounded and looked at last week. That's our normal practice. We spent about almost two years taking a break here and there to work through the gospel of Mark. And we've got another uh, Bible, a book of the Bible that we're going to be jumping out into here not long after we conclude this series I think it's helpful for us to take a break and look, what does our church, what are we saying when we covenant one to the other? And so instead of just working through one book of the Bible, we're going to be jumping around, going from passage to passage. We'll still be expounding each passage, some of them more in-depth than, than, than others. But we're going to begin our time this morning really by looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn there. First Timothy, or, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. The scriptures tell us there, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Father, we have gathered here not to hear the the ramblings of this man. Father, we've gathered to hear your word opened up. Father, we want to hear what you have to say. We believe that your word is the Bible. We believe the Bible is your word, and so we submit ourselves to it. Father, we trust you now. We pray that by the power of your spirit that you'd quicken our lives and open our minds. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't think I'll ever forget it. There I was teaching a membership class. A young man and his wife there sitting in the class with a few others. We began to talk about the membership covenant at the church. Promises that we would make one to the other. What they could expect of me and the other pastors and what we as members and pastors would expect of them. And I'll never forget the look on his face. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Back up. What exactly am I signing up for? I thought it was a really valid question, although I was taken back. I didn't expect to get that question from him. What exactly am I signing up for? Easy answer for you this morning. I wish I would have had it ready at that point in time, and I said something to the like. It's submission to Jesus. It's what it means to be a Christian. What is our covenant? It's a distillation of God's command that he gives his church. We promise one to the other that we will do it before God and with his help. So what does submission to Jesus 
actually look like? Well, it looks like the word of God. That's the first point. The Bible is the word of God. In that passage that we just read a moment ago in verse 16, it says, all Scripture. Now, I've treated this text with a little bit more care and detail earlier in a series uh, called Our Values. You can look it up on our website. And so I won't go into all the details of what this word all Scripture means, but we can say this. It means all the writings that are Scripture. Pretty simple, right? The apostle is telling us under the inspiration of the Word of God that all Scripture is therefore inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. It's the very breath of God across men, across the pages, written by the pen of men, breathed out by the breath of God. It's interesting, that word, it's believed that that the Apostle Paul really kind of coined it for the first time. Before, in any Greek writing, theonoustos had never been used before. So when Paul's describing what it is, what is Scripture, what, how did it come to be, and he, he says it's not, it's not like anything else. It's breathed out by God. It's important that we approach the Bible in the same way, that it presents itself as the very cohesive breath of God. It's his very words written down by men. The Bible is not a collection of the wisdom and insights of spiritual men over the centuries and ages. It's not that. It's far, far more. It's God's truth in his own word given to us. The psalmist thinking of the word of God, he says in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Your word, God, it's settled in heaven from eternity past to eternity future. And it's been divinely revealed to men on earth and it's divinely authenticated in heaven. This is why Peter declares to us in 2 Peter chapter 1, a a text I would encourage you to spend some time in this week. He says this, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, speaking of Scripture, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. When we think of the Word of God, around here we've used two words to describe it. We didn't come up with these words, but they do aptly describe the Word of God, and it's this, authoritative and sufficient. It's authoritative and it's sufficient. We want you to think about the Word of God. And as you do, realize this. It's not in a, a thunderous, obnoxious noise that accomplishes nothing other than strike fear in the hearts of its hearers. The Word of God is accomplishing something. Anytime that God speaks, anytime that he communicates, something happens. Something changes. Something comes into being. His words are powerful. Scriptures teach us that they actually are the essence of power. Galaxies come into being when God speaks. Think about that. Mountains rise up out of the ocean. Seas are parted. Dead are raised when God speaks. Isaiah 55 verse 11 says this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's not thunderous, obnoxious noise. It's doing something. God's word has come to us, and it's doing something. Something. What is the purpose of God's authoritative word? Well, it's sufficient for everything, for life and godliness. What does it do? Well, this text tells us. What is it accomplishing? What's it doing? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says it's training our minds. It's giving us doctrine. It's teaching us the right way to think, not just of God, but also of ourselves. It's teaching us. It's training us. What else is it doing? Well, it's reproof. Sufficient for reproof, which is what? It's revealing our flaws. Revealing back to training. It's revealing where we've thought wrong and even where we've done wrong. The Word of God is accomplishing that. As you think of the Word of God accomplishing exactly what it was intended to do, think about a time in your life where you heard Scripture read. Maybe it was even this morning. And the Spirit of God using the Word of God cut your heart. Maybe it encouraged you. Maybe it pointed out some sin or, or wrong thinking in your life. You were being trained. You were experiencing reproof. But it's also helpful for correction. It corrects our actions. And it coaches us to be godly. This is what the word of God is there for. This is why God has given to us. This is what it means to accomplish. And brothers and sisters, it is, in fact, accomplishing that thing it's sufficient how does this connect to the big idea this morning that God's word is God's word the Bible has been given to us it's authoritative and it's sufficient how does it connect we submit to Christ we submit to the Lord of this church when we submit to his word I want you to see something here This will be the theme that really kind of flows through the rest of our time this morning together. If you say that you love Jesus, but you don't love his book, there's a problem. And I don't say that to be on the nose or even to be offensive. But in love and as as much humility as a prideful man can, can muster, if you don't love the word of God, then you don't truly love Jesus. Now, you may love a Jesus that you've crafted in your own mind, one that your sinful heart desires, or maybe you love a a Jesus that has been given to you by culture, and this cultural moment, they've got a lot of versions of Jesus that are divorced from his word. The truth of the matter is, if you don't love God's word, you do not love Jesus. We understand that the Bible claims to be the word of God. Jesus himself is even called the word of God, made flesh. But what does it mean? What does it say? What does it have to say to us? Well, first we looked at the Bible is the word of God, and now we'll look at the second point. As we move down this logical train, number two, the Bible gives specific commands to all Christians. So the Bible is the word of God, and what does it say? Well, it has something to say to all Christians. It has something to say to everyone. Whether you're in the church or not, whether you've turned from your sins and trusted Christ or not, it has something to say to all of us. 
But specifically, there are many, many words, many commands given to the church. We're going to take a look at those this morning. This entire point, what I'd like to do is something a bit out of the ordinary for us. I'd like to just reference a lot of Scripture. And you could try to take notes and keep up, or I can just send you a copy of this later at your request through uh, text or email. Maybe even I'll post it online. But I'd like to just, I want, you to, I want you to come in contact this morning with a list that the Scriptures give us. And many Christians or theologians have called it the one another's. Are you familiar with the one another's of Scripture? There's quite a few. Number one, Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 50 says, be at peace with one another. John chapter 13, verse, verse 14, Jesus says, wash one another's feet. John chapter 13, verse 34, twice, love one another, love one another. The next verse, love one another. Two chapters later in chapter 15, love one another. Five verses later in chapter 15, love one another. These are commands that we've been given from our Lord and Savior, from his very lips. The scriptures speak much more than just what Jesus explicitly states, but his word collectively continue to tell us in Romans chapter 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Same verse, honor one another above yourself. Six verses later, live in harmony with one another. And here again in chapter 13, verse 8, love one another. These are just 11 so far. And we're going to keep going. The 12th, found in Romans chapter 14, stop passing judgment on one another. Verse 13, or, chapter, or the, the 13th one, accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you. That's in Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Romans 15, chapter, uh, or 15, 14 says, instruct one another. In Romans 16, 16, I wish I could exposit this a little more. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It's there. The 16th command of one another. Are we getting to, to the top, of the, to the end of the list? 1 Corinthians 11 says, when you come to eat together, wait for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, have equal concern for each other. And then again, 1 Corinthians 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, 2 Corinthians 13, greet one another with a holy kiss. Galatians chapter 5, serve one another in love. Galatians 5.15, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, you'll be destroyed by each other. Galatians chapter 5.26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. At the end of that book, carry each other's burdens. Ephesians chapter 4, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And then again, be kind and compassionate to one another. And then finally there in that, in that chapter, forgiving one another, forgiving each other. Ephesians 5, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Do you think we're getting to the end of the list? 
It's the clarity that you have from Christ, the commands that he is laying upon you, church. Is it, is it becoming heavier? We have a responsibility, one to the other before God. 29th, found in Philippians chapter 2, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to each other. Colossians 3.13, bear with each other. Bear with, press in. Colossians 3.13 again, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. The 32nd, found in Colossians 3 again, teach one another. And then again, admonish one another. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. One chapter later, love each other. Same chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Encourage each other. And then again, in the next chapter, encourage each other. That same verse, build each other up. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, encourage one another, how often? Daily, daily. Hebrews chapter 10, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. One verse later, encourage one another. James chapter 4, do not slander one another. One chapter later, James 5, don't grumble against each other. A few verses later, confess your sins to each other. Same chapter, same verse. Pray for each other. 1 Peter 3, 8, love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Love each other deeply again. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Are we getting to the end of the list yet? Not quite. Not quite. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 1 Peter 4.10. 1 Peter 5, 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. What beautiful language. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. The 53rd, greet one another with a kiss of love. 1 Peter 5, verse 14. And then 1 John 3, love one another. 1 John 3, 23, love one another. Again in chapter 4, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. We've got 59 instances. Just in the one another's where we as a church, with the authority of our creator has called us to Relate to one another in specific ways. And the truth of the matter is, as I said a few moments ago, our church covenant is basically a distillation of these 59 commands. We've distilled them down. 
And we say, hey, this is what we're going to commit to together because our God has said that we must treat each other in this way. We believe the Bible is the word of God. And as we read the word of God, we see these 59 commands among many others given to us by God himself. Specific commands. And up until this point, most of us have felt pretty comfortable. God has given us his word. It's, it's his. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. He calls us to some specific things. Okay. I, I, I get that. It's pretty tough, but I get it. But our logical move here, it doesn't end right there. We've got some more work to do. This third point is where it starts to sting a little bit. The scriptures tell us, point number three, that true Christians will submit to God's commands. That true Christians will submit to God's commands. Jesus speaking to his disciples, really by extension us, he says in John chapter 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's an axiomatic truth that's, that's here. It's self-evident that those who love Jesus will obey Jesus. Jesus' disciples will listen to Jesus. They'll submit to Jesus, else they wouldn't be disciples. That makes sense. And Jesus very clearly lists it out for us. We love him. We demonstrate our love for him if we keep his commandments. Now, we can really easily get off the rails here. We can fall into a ditch on one side or the other. We can really fall into some grief and anxiety as we read this text and we consider the last week of our individual lives. Before you fall into the ditch, let me just remind you. Let me provide some context to this idea of us loving God and demonstrating that by keeping his commands. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says, We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And so I want you to hold these two truths together. You can really cut yourself with John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We can really cut ourselves and we can cut others around us. The safety, if you would, attached to that razor is this. We love him because he first loved us. Us And we hold those two verses together. And when we do, we realize that those who love Jesus will obey him, and those who love him were first loved by God. Those two ideas, they're tied together nicely in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When you ask this morning, who is the causal agent in all of this? It's God. And then you would say, well, what's the cause then? Mercy and love. God's mercy and love. That's what it clearly says to us. And then what's the activity that he made us alive? Over the course of the last few weeks, we've considered this idea. What do dead people need? Good illustrations on how to take breath? 
Do they need clear, uh, clear instructions on how to, to, to exhale and inhale? Or do they need somebody, something outside of themselves to breathe for them and to make them, in a sense, alive? This is what they need, and this is what God has done for us. You consider this idea of being made alive. You can't be made to love unless you've been made alive. And so before you cut yourself, before you cut your, your children spiritually speaking, or before you cut somebody in your D group or life group, realize this truth, that he first loved us. He's the causal agent. It's his mercy and love working in us through the power of his spirit and his revealed word that makes us alive. And because we are alive, we then can love him in return. And this is a work that he is doing. Philippians chapter 1, speaking to this concern of, wait a minute, can I finish the thing that God started? The answer is no, but the answer really should be, you can't do it, but he can, and he promised to. Philippians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6 says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work, he who brought you to life, he that loved you first, caused you to love him He'll bring that to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So the guardrails here for us is this. We love God. We, we love Jesus. Why? Because he first loved us. And that love is regenerating and it causes us to love him in return. And he promises that he'll bring our love to completion. Our concern for him, our submission to him, he'll Improve our repentance until it's finally matured. Do you long for that day? So here's the argument that I'm working to establish and just really just seeing in these scriptures. One, Jesus loves his church. Two, Jesus saves his church. He loves his church. He saves his church. Because he saves his church, the church is now enabled to love Jesus back and fourth, the church is now enabled to not just love Jesus, but to demonstrate their love for Jesus by obeying him. And so that's why Jesus says with great confidence to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Notice that he's not saying if you obey me, you will earn my love. It's against the gospel. It's counter scripture. That's not what God has revealed to us. It's not the case. It's Jesus' obedience that earned his love, God's love for you. And it's your obedience as a sort of delivery receipt, proving that the spirit of God has caused you to be born again. It doesn't cause the, the love of God to be delivered, but it does evidence that it has been delivered by the Spirit. And so, you thought about the words of Isaiah, the prophet. The Word of God, it, it doesn't just go out and bounce around and accomplish nothing. It's just not just noisy noise. It's accomplishing something. It will not return to him void. It will accomplish exactly what he desires. And so we can say with confidence, to this point, the Bible is the word of God. 
The word of God has clear instructions for the church. We looked at 59 specific ones, and that's really just a few. We established this, that Jesus said that his church would truly obey those commands if they loved him. And so the mark of a true Christian is that they obey Jesus' commands. In this present age, we see a dividing of the church. Particularly in this culture, we see it in a divide in human sexuality and gender. Many, in an attempt to kind of capture what's taking place, they'll say there's a divide in the church. There's a, there's a break in the church. There's a, there's a separation of, in the church. Many would say that and really deeply feel that in order to love their neighbor, which is the second great commandment, they have to break the first commandment, which is to love God. And I understand the, the, the feeling behind that. But the truth of the matter is you can't Fully love your neighbor if you do not truly first love your God. You can't fully love your neighbor if you don't first fully and truly love your God. So whatever your motivation is, all actions toward your neighbor jettisoned from the love of God will fail. Mark it down. That's what the scriptures teach us. It won't truly be love manifest for your neighbor if you don't truly first love God and act out of that primarily. And while some would say we're observing the splitting of the church, really scripture indicates that it's not the splitting of the churches. It's not the splitting of denominations. It's the pruning of the church. Those who truly are Christ's are remaining faithful to Christ's word. They're remaining faithful to Christ's commands. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll love me with all your heart, with all your soul and all your mind, and then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to just ask you quickly, do you see evidence of that in your own life? One way or the other, really. Do you see a desire in your life to keep his commands? Or do you see an evidence, uh, evidence in your life of completely going against whatever he has commanded and letting your own heart, your own sinful desires, whether you see them as sinful or not, do they rule you? Or are you finding yourself submitting to God's command? Has the Spirit of God led you to repentance? Has he led you to agree with your own sinful life and say the same thing of your life that he says of your life? Do you sense the conviction of the Spirit to, to keep on turning from sin and turning to God in obedience? I pray that you do. If not, maybe you do that for the first time this morning. Sense the Spirit drawing you to repentance, to agree with your sinful heart as God says about it. Before we move on, I want to address indwelling sin. That's another knife that we could leave laying out that could really harm some of us. Some of us find uh, no comfort in these verses because as you look at your own life, you see, I, yes, I see these good things that God has done in my life, but I also see this indwelling sin. I've struggled to mortify. I've, I've struggled to put it to death. And so is Jesus saying, because I'm not perfect, because I've not obeyed in all things, because I've, I don't have a perfect, righteous life on my own, that I'm truly not one of his disciples. Is that what he's saying? Well, it, it's, it's not what he's saying. 
Jesus' love for you, Christian, it, it's, it, it's, it's for you regardless of the work that you've created with your own hands. But his love has also enabled you not just to be loved and to love him, but also to obey him as well. And I would estimate that if you're truly in Christ, you could see with your own eyes if you were being objective, and no doubt those around you in the church could also see that you are more and more, day after day, being sanctified by the Spirit, being led into greater obedience. And even still, you might say, but still, There's this sin in my life, and I hate it, and I want to be free of it. I'm just not experiencing that freedom. I would ask you this. What is the first and greatest instruction of Jesus to a lost and dying world? You might say, well, it's to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And you might even be real smart and tack on there and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in a sense, you're right. But none of us have done that. None of us have done that. And so what is his first piece of instructions to us? Well, we really found a lot of joy, I think. I know I did, looking at the words of Jesus there recorded in Mark. What did he come into the world saying? How did he begin his ministry? The very first word rolling off of the the real lips of Jesus Christ. God that had taken on flesh was to repent. You became a Christian as you repented of sin. This, I would argue, really is the first and greatest instruction that Jesus gives to the church. Repent. So you may say, well, I'm not free of this sin yet. Are you repenting? Do you agree with that sin? Do you agree with God about that sin? Just keep on repenting. Keep on repenting. On the other side of that, I don't want to splash water on your concern. I don't want to just put out that little fire. It's possible this morning that you came into this place thinking, I am a Christian, but now upon hearing the words of Jesus Christ in John 14 are thinking, there's no way I'm a Christian, and I don't want to put that fire out. The last thing I want to do is squelch that uncomfortable feeling if it is from the Spirit of God. Yes, there's a healing salve in these verses. If you love God, you'll keep his commandments. But there's also a cutting sword. Sometimes we don't need salve. Sometimes first we need the sword. If you truly believe in Jesus, if you truly love Jesus, then you'll keep his commands. Remember, that's a work that he promises to do in his church. He promised to bring it to completion. He promised that in your struggling, in your repenting, that he was working and that he would complete the task. That you would be mature in him before God. Finally, at least, in that glorified body. So these are some personal questions we've looked at. Am I repenting? Am I agreeing with God about my sin? God's word asks us to take it one step farther. And so we went into that deep end of, am I repenting? Am I loving God? Am I obeying his commands? But really, we are to take it another step. Yes, we're to ask, am I in the faith? Do I obey Jesus? But it gets more challenging. 
We're not just to submit to Jesus' commands. We're not just to consider our own lives, but we are also expected to do the same for others. We're also expected to do the same for others. And this is the fourth point. This is kind of the crescendo of our time together this morning, aside from the Lord's Supper. Number four, true Christians can expect other Christians to submit to God the most shocking, jarring passage in the New Testament for 21st century believers. It's this one. I, don't, I, I can't think of one more than this that runs in the face of our culture. So I ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're really going to take a few moments and just read this entire passage. I think it's one of the most shocking, jarring Scriptures, why? Because true Christians are called to expect of other Christians to submit to God's command. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, a real people in history with a real context, real background to what's taking place here, he begins chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant are you not rather to mourn let him who has done this be removed from among you for though I'm present in body I am present in spirit or not present in, in body I am present in spirit and as if present I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil from among you. At this point in time, what is clear to us is that a member of the Corinthian church has violated a rule of the community of God by committing a specific sexual, sexually immoral act. And nothing happened. He continued to do this thing. He continued to, to think himself a Christian while he disobeyed the instructions of his God and Savior. He was, considered to be, he was continually considered to be a Christian, even though he acted, obviously, 
before the rest of the members of the church in a way contrary to the word of God. And Paul, clearly speaking to the church, patiently but pointedly instructs them to do something about it. Remove him from membership. Let's follow Paul's logic. How does he come to this conclusion that this man is to be removed? Well, he's saying this. Paul's saying, okay, I see, what you're, I see what's happening over there, but here's what I see in contrast. The Bible is the word of God, and it says that that thing is wrong. There's a specific command to not do that. Okay, so Paul's looked at point one, the Bible's the word of God. He's looked at specific commands. Point number two, that include abstaining from sexual immorality. He moves on to point number three, and he thinks, okay, this guy's calling himself a Christian, and all these other brothers and sisters are, whether they're doing it implicitly or explicitly, they're calling him a Christian as well. Nothing's changed. But Paul says, in the face of that, true Christians will submit to God's commands. First and foremost, they're to repent when they have sinned. Repentance is the opposite of rebellion, and this man is in full-on rebellion. And Paul says in the fourth point, man, Corinthians, if you guys are true Christians, you, 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 should, you can expect other Christians to act in submission to God's commands also. And so this man was not and had not obeyed the commands of his Lord and Savior He wasn't repenting. He hadn't made a mistake and now seeking forgiveness, which repentance, it's not doing that. Full-on rebellion. And yet the church still treated him as if he was a believer, a member of Christ's church. The problem was obvious for Paul. So he calls the church to action. What about you? you? Do you see that as a problem? The truth is we know other people are Christians because they, they submit to God's commands. And those who do not submit to God's commands cannot rightly be considered Christians. Not safely. And they, they may still be. Maybe you're thinking of your own life or somebody in your life that you've seen for a, a period of time. They rebelled against Christ and his clear commands for them. And then at some point in time, they returned again to their first love in a sense. They once again submitted themselves back to the lordship of Christ, the community of saints. The truth is, in that moment of rebellion, in that period of time, you can't honestly consider them or think of them as Christians. And so Paul's saying, remove him from the church. And really, it's at this point in time that, in a sense, I think the Bible rests its case, applied to the 21st century gathering this morning. What case am I speaking of? The the case for the church covenant. It's a local collective and explicit promise before God and to each other that we will submit ourselves to Jesus' authority. It's the very thing that we've been required by Jesus to do. And so you kind of see how this works. I believe I've made the case that the word of God says that we should covenant one with the other, promising that we'll do the things that he promises. And the first point in our covenant is that we will do that. So what's the point of all this? What's the point of a covenant? What's the point of holding each other accountable and what's the motivation? Well, aside from hoping and trusting that we will remain faithful to obey all that we have been commanded, the hope is that 
really our love for others would be displayed through watchfulness. And so we care for one another. We care for one another. We, we, we love each other and we display that love for each other by watchfulness over each other. The very thing that we've been commanded to do. I think of Matthew chapter 7. I've referenced this many times. Shocking words that Jesus gives. Not everyone who says to me, says to me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. With that in mind, I think of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the the Holy Spirit, says this, Church, strive for peace with everyone. Strive for peace and strive for holiness. Manifested holiness. Obedience to God. He says, strive for that. Strive together for that. Strive to remain unified and at peace with each other. Why? He says, because without that, without holiness, no one will fit with the gospel. How does all this fit with the gospel? We're commanded to obey God. We're commanded to love God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And we know that we are unable to do that thing. We know that even in our heart of hearts, we have zero love for Jesus on our own. But we're reminded through the gospel that we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. And this is really what Paul is calling the church to remember. And that's why his argument is based on the Passover. I won't try to restate it. I'm just going to read it. David K. Lowry, he captures Paul's argument or the foundation for it well when he says this. As the literal yeast was removed from the house during the festival of unleavened bread, so that which it illustrated sin was, was to be removed from the house of God, the local church. During its festival of unleavened bread, a continual observance for a Christian who has found in Christ's death on the cross the once-for-all sacrifice of the Passover lamb. This was nowhere more true than in the celebration which commemorated that sacrificial act, which is the Lord's Supper. He calls the quintessential act of fellowship for Christians. So we gather this morning as a church around the word of God, singing the praise of God, knowing this, that we love him because he first loved us. And his love that came first to us will not leave us where we are. But we come to this table to be reminded of what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish. And by the way, we come here together. One of the ways that we demonstrate a submission to Christ is by taking communion. He commanded his church to do that. It's not some extracurricular devotional thing that you can opt in and out of. If you're a Christian, when your church takes communion, you need to be there and you need to take communion with them. While communion is joy-inducing and sin-revealing, it's an allegiance, it's declaring, it's also an act of obedience. 
And so in other words, it's not an option. He's commanded us to do this. I want to, I want to read a, a portion of Scripture that reminds us of that. We look at it often. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He goes on. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so the dedicated time at the Lord's table is for Christians who have submitted themselves to Jesus' authority through his word. Christians who are repenting, who have not earned salvation through their obedience, but who have received love because of Jesus' obedience and have responded in love and obedience and returned to him. Christians, we truly believe that Jesus died after a perfect life, we believe that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day. We believe that his death was for the sins of his church. We believe that when he was raised, it secured our justification. We believe that he will return again in glory as the Lord of lords and as the King of kings. And the, the truth of the matter is, if you don't yet believe that, you shouldn't come and receive from this table this morning. And so I'd ask you to abstain from the bread and abstain from the cup until you come to faith in Christ. And then in that point, at that point, you can obtain, you can partake, rather, from the Lord's Supper worthily in full belief and full trust in Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning and you're a member of a like-minded gospel-preaching church, I invite you to join us at the Lord's, uh, with the Lord's Supper this morning. Even if your church doesn't practice formal church membership, but you're a baptized, committed, um, a baptized Christian committed to your local church, I invite you to join us as well this morning. If you find that your heart's not right, though, if you find that there's something between you and your Savior, if there's something unrepentant sin between you and a brother or sister, I'd ask that you wait. I'd ask that you abstain, take care of that. You're welcome to even do that this morning. In just a moment, there'll be a time of reflection. I would invite you to take action then. Remember that in this time that we can examine ourselves, we can step into honest conversations about our sin, where we failed, where others have failed us. We can repent. We can stand up and go to our brother or sister, even in this very moment, and seek forgiveness, even though that might seem embarrassing. Why? How? Because Jesus has saved us. We have no shame. There's no condemnation in him. And so maybe there's some work for you to do this morning in, re in regards to Jesus' finished work. But also remember this, that we receive from this table freely. You don't earn a right to, to eat at this table. You've been given that in love. And so part of preparing for the Lord's table really is recognizing that this is a gift of grace that you cannot earn. And so in just a moment, we'll have a time of of music playing, just a time provided for you to, re, to reflect. And so I would ask that you do that, that you take the next few moments to reflect on your own life.
That's that you spend some time repenting, asking God to, to search your heart. Is there any wicked way in me? Is there any leaven in my own life? Confessing that to a brother and sister, confessing that to the Lord, but then also using this time to really just rejoice, considering the kindness of Jesus who invited all of these unworthy people to receive from his table. What joy. And so take this time now to reflect. Father, you sustain us through the physical nutrition, get through our meals. You sustain us through the sleep that you give your saints. We can lay our heads down, though the earth is at rest. There's sin in our lives, even weakness. We can still rest in you in those moments. You sustain us there. Father, spiritually, you sustain us through this meal that we are reminded of. You gave us your son. His blood was shed. His body was broken. And that you invite those in the streets and the highways and hedges to come into your house and to receive from your table. Father, we're not worthy, but you've made us worthy. So we thank you. Because of your love, we love you. We trust that you'll continue to work in our lives. That you'll continue to grow us and sanctify us into the image of Christ. So we come to the table now, reminded of these things, encouraged by these things, convicted by these things, but ultimately just looking to Jesus in awe. 
but thank you for making us worthy. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Scriptures say that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. Let me ask a blessing on this. Father, again, just give you thanks for the body of Jesus, your son broken for us. We pray a blessing on this. Father, we recognize that Jesus is not present in this wafer. What it symbolizes is so powerful for us. And we pray that you'd bless us with that truth. We ask it now in your name. Do this in remembrance of me. As we partake of the cup, we drink it in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for us. And it stirs up a level of gratitude in our lives.
give a prayer of thanks. Father, we rejoice together, your church. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet there was blood that was shed, the blood of your son. And so we just give thanks for that now. Again, we ask these things in the name of Jesus. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So church, in remembrance of him. Praise God. Hebrews 13, 20 to 21 says this. Now may the God of peace, who brought you again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good work that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious, glorious truth. We come to you now asking that the God of peace, who brought us peace by bringing our Savior back from the dead, our great Savior who is the shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd of this church. Father, he sealed our lives. He sealed our righteousness by the We ask that through his work that you would give us every good thing that you've promised. Father, that you would work in us your will that the love that you gave to us that works a love back towards you from us, that it would be measured out with obedience. Father, we pray that you would do what's, that you'd bring this uh, to, to occur in our lives, that we'd be pleasing in your sight. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and to, for his name and, and for his glory. Amen.